Have, I, have we talked before about comfortable nudes? Have we talked about that? Do you all remember? So I got, yes? Okay. So did we talk about it here? So I, I go to a gym three or four days a week, and our gym has a locker room, and there's a certain species of man. I don't know if females do this, comfortable nudes. They like walking around without their clothes on. I'm not one of those people. They tend to, this is stereotypical, they tend to be older and they look like they could use a gym more than maybe the average person. <laughs> we see multiple activities from the comfortable nudes. We have their TVs in there. They're getting their stock tips, buck naked. Getting, getting dressed is the last thing they do. They're fixing their hair, blow drying, shaving, milling around, talking to one another. Makes me incredibly uncomfortable. So I'm in there on, uh, I can't remember, maybe Wednesday night, and I'm, I'm pretty ragged. It's after I have exercised. I'm kind of on that line. Am I going to throw up? Am I not going to throw up? So I've got my head down on the bench, and a guy comes in, and for me, there's probably 250 lockers in this gym. Don't, don't pick the one right now. There's plenty of space. I'm the only guy in the locker room. And he pulls in, kind of sidles up right next to me, and he starts talking to me, you know, did you just work out? And I'm debating sarcasm versus not. I mean, I'm obviously, I either just swam with my clothes on or I just got done exercising. I'm, again, I'm about to throw up. I got my head down, even look up. I, saw, I said, yeah, I'm done. Just, you know, getting my stuff. And he starts undressing. And he starts asking me all these questions about what I'm doing and how I did it and does all these technical training questions as he's taken his, uh, my, my head is still down, but you know, I'm sensing movement here. And then uh, I don't have a good sight line for when I look up. And he, he just keeps on going and I'm trapped. I'm here, he's here, and the door is here. I can't figure out how to, how do I maneuver around him so I can get out of here. How do I cut off this conversation in some civil way? He's just standing there naked talking to me. And I didn't tell you this. There's mirrors all along the back wall. So it's uh, you're getting a 360 degree exposure there. This is my takeaway. And we'll, we'll, I'll tie this back in at the end. There is nothing, nothing in the world that I want bad enough that I'm willing to ask a naked man for it. Nothing. <laughs> We're going to come back to that. Here's uh, Mark 10, starting in verse 32. They, that's Jesus uh, and his disciples and this group of people, they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. I'm going to stop there. Just I don't want to park here too long. So Jesus and this crowd, they're heading to Jerusalem. It's about, it's days away from Passover. And then the feast that follows Passover is called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's the, the uh, biggest religious celebration in Judaism. There were three festivals where pilgrims would come to Jerusalem to uh, celebrate. And Passover slash the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that was the biggest. Hundreds of thousands of pilgrims are there. 
Passover, if you remember, you can go back and read Exodus. It's the story of God delivering his people out of Egypt, out of slavery. And so there's this, there's always this underlying current as they're celebrating Passover. When is our next deliverer coming? We're, 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 we're oppressed right now. We're under this pagan Roman rule. When is God going to send our next Moses, the next deliverer for us? So you've got hundreds of thousands, a minimum of 200,000 extra people in Jerusalem. They've got this kind of religious fervor is kind of peaking. Jesus has been, has uh, escalated these declarations that he's going to die, that he's going to be betrayed. He is, we've talked before, this kind of messianic flavor to his ministry has really come to the fore over the last couple of months. And uh, to me, the crowd, whoever the crowd, everybody's picking up on this and they know he's headed to Jerusalem and like we said last week that's where big stuff happens if you're a Jew big stuff happens in Jerusalem and so they're headed that way and it's interesting to me that the different uh, reactions to the same circumstance and it's all based on proximity to Jesus the crowds those are who are more distant from him relationally are afraid and that's exactly what you think it means throughout the Bible I think 92 times or something in the New Testament that word appears in most of the time, it, uh, it appears in the sentence, do not be afraid. This word astonished, those are the 12, those who are closest to him, only occurs three times, always in Mark, and it always centers around people being amazed at something new Jesus has said. He's doing something different, and they're astonished. It's, a, again, this kind of word of surprise. And, again, this, the same circumstances, Jesus heading towards, towards Jerusalem within days of this major feast with all of the expectations swirling around that i think people can smell something is going to happen and the difference between being astonished and being afraid is how close you are relationally to jesus and the takeaway for us he's god's going to do stuff that we don't get you know we you know the verse you know his ways are higher than our our ways and you know his thoughts are higher than our thoughts his ways are not our ways you know that whole thing if you've been walking with the lord for any length of time he's done things and you what i don't he doesn't he rarely takes a straight line from a to b it's often circuitous a lot of times you can't tell what he's doing except in retrospect uh, subtle versus overt all of those type of things we're going to be confused at times and the difference between being afraid when you can't see what he's doing we don't understand and just being astonished is how close you are to Jesus. Proximity changes everything. It doesn't change the circumstances, but it definitely changes your perspective on them. Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen. We'll pause here as well. This whole idea again, so there's going to be times where God works that we're not going to understand what he's doing. What I want you to hear is he wants to pull you in. Jesus, this is the moment that he's been prepared for for at least the last three years. He's been moving towards this moment when he would enter Jerusalem for this final week of his life. And he takes time during that to pull aside with his disciples and one more time tell them this is what's going to happen. Uh, in Genesis 18, uh, God appears to Abraham. And he's, God's about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, shall I keep from Abraham what I'm about to do? And he answers his own question, no, I'm not going to. I've picked him. He's my guy. I'm going to let him know what I'm going to do. And you remember the story. God tells Abraham, this is what I'm about to do to Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham says, are you going to sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there's 50 righteous people? Will you 
not do this? And God says, yeah, there's 50. And then he and Abraham barter back and forth. And it's this beautiful picture of what God is looking for from his people. He's looking for partnership. He could have done things however he wanted to. He's sovereign. And what he chose is to partner with us to accomplish his purposes in the world. He almost always, I'm not saying always because I'm sure there are exceptions, almost always chooses to work through his people. And his people are us. He wants us to know what he's doing. But knowing what he's doing is not the same thing as knowing what's going to happen. Joseph in Genesis had this dream, and in the dream, his brothers and uh, his father actually bow down before him. That's what God is doing. He's going to elevate Joseph to a position of prominence in his family. Nowhere in there does it say anything. There's no indication that Joseph knew he was going to be sold into slavery and be falsely accused of rape and be thrown into prison and be forgotten about for two years and then to come out and be elevated to be the vice regent in Egypt. That's what happened. Joseph didn't know any of that. What he did know is what God is doing. He's going to elevate me and my family. You see the difference between those two things. So putting both of those things together, plenty of times we're not going to understand what is happening we can know what God is doing. We just ask him, ask him, God, what are you doing in my home? What are you doing in my family? What are you doing in the place where I work? doesn't matter whether it's a Christian or not a Christian organization. God's at work everywhere. God, what are you doing here? What are you doing on this project? What are you doing here at this lunch meeting with this? What are you doing here when I'm with my girlfriends? Whatever it looks like, what, what are you doing? Ask him. He wants to tell you. He won't tell you what's going to happen but he will tell you what he's doing, and we can get on board with that. Again, moving from this posture of being afraid to being astonished. For going up to Jerusalem, Jesus said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. I forgot to tell you all, there are outlines. Does anybody want an outline? Sorry, I forget every week. I forget most weeks. Kim has them. Raise your hand if you want an outline. You haven't missed much. We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. This is the third time in, in three chapters that Jesus has predicted his own death. It's the most specific um, of all three. Then James and John, so those are two of the inner three. There's Peter, James, and John, and James and John are two of that inner circle of three. The sons of Zebedee came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and let the other sit at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink of or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? That's, they're basically saying, can you, he's saying, can you go through what I'm about to go through? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. There's this huge disconnect that you see. So these are Jesus to his 12 closest friends on the face of the earth says to them, this is what's about to happen to me. What does he say? I'm going to be betrayed. They're going to condemn me to death. They're going to hand me over to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles are going to mock me, spit on me, flog me, that's beat me with a whip, and kill me. Three days later, I'm going to rise. Focus there is on this suffering he's about to endure so that's what he says and of his 12 closest friends two of the three closest of the close come up to him and say okay that's all about to happen 
Can I sit on your right hand and can I sit on your left? What? He just told them, I'm about to be betrayed, condemned to death, spit on, mocked, flogged, and killed. And they're saying, after all that, can we have these positions of prominence and power and status in your kingdom? Huge disconnect there for Jesus and these, again, the people who should know better. The, when, Jesus, when, when, when you're asking God, what are you doing? That question, what are you doing in my life? What are you doing in these different circumstances? When God tells you what he's doing, the question is not, what can I get out of it? The question is, how can I help? They ask the wrong question. They're going to him saying, okay, that's all about to happen. Thank you for revealing what God is doing. Now, what can I get out of that? How does that benefit me in some way? How can I insert my selfish agenda into what God is doing in my life? Always the wrong question. The right question is always, how can I help? Jesus' response. He says, listen, very gracious. Y'all just do your deal. We talk about that all the time. You're gonna, there's a cup that you're going to have to drink. There's a baptism you're going to have to get, undergo. Same thing for all of us. We all have a, a thing that God has called us to. There's good works God has called us to. They will entail some degree of suffering because that's life. We're all going to have to undergo those things, drink those things, as Jesus says. And he said, you just focus on that. You just do your deal. Leave the rewards up to your Father. All Those places have already been determined. And so for us, if you tend to be someone who maybe is a, is a bit self-seeking. You know, you, you want to know what's going on, but your own agenda tends to get in the way. You tend to promote yourself, look for opportunities to raise your own platform. But I would say to you, you just, you focus on being obedient. You focus on doing your deal. The rewards will take care of themselves. That stuff's already been laid out for you. And you just, you don't need to worry about where your what your positioning is with God. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. The reason they were indignant is because they all wanted the same thing. James and John just beat them to Jesus. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus, again, teaching opportunity. This is the second time he's taught almost this exact same truth. If you want to be first, you've got to be last. If you want to gain something, you've got to be willing to give it up. The person who loses his life gets it back. The person who tries to keep his life, you're going to lose it. This theme runs throughout chapters 8. 9 and 10. He's trying to hammer this home to the disciples. He's flipping their paradigm on what it means to be great. It doesn't mean being elevated. It means moving to the bottom of the stack. For us, if we're serious about Romans 8.29, that God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of Jesus, then we've got to figure out what does it look like for me and for you to be a servant or a slave in our life. What is that? That's a, if you've grown up in the church, that's a Christian cliche. Servant leadership, first or last, servant of all. Like we, Yeah, we've all heard that. But it's one thing to, again, know that as a cliche. It's completely different to actually live that out in your life. What does it look like to be a servant or a slave of all? We said a few weeks ago when we looked at this same teaching a few chapters back, 
Servants and slaves, their job is to meet the needs of others. It doesn't matter if they're tired. It doesn't matter if they like the people. It doesn't matter if what they're asked of. It doesn't matter if it's a fair request. That's it's your job. You're a slave. You meet the needs of your master. You're a servant. You meet the needs of your master. That's what you do. And I think for us, there's a, there's a bit of that discipline component that we need. It's easy to be a servant or a slave to people who you like or to people who you love or to people who are charming or polite or pretty or what. It's difficult with other folks. And that's where we tend to draw those lines. I'm not going to serve that or when the serving for us can cost us something. And I'll just say straight up, it's going to cost you something. For Jesus, it cost him being arrested, being betrayed and being arrested and being condemned to death and being spit upon and mocked and flogged and crucified. That's what it cost him. He got it all back three days later, but he had to give all of it up the first time. Last week, we looked at the rich young ruler, this promise Jesus makes. Anyone who leaves anything for me, you get it back times 100 plus persecution, but you get it back. But you have to give it up first or you're not going to get it back. And the way you receive it back, it's not going to look like the way that you gave it up. You can't outgive God. We talked about that last week. He'll give back, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. But the point for most of us is learning what does it look like for me to serve sacrificially. Jesus said he didn't come to be served but to serve, and we're never more like him than when we're doing that. Now, none of us are a ransom. That's the gospel in ten words or less, however many words that is. Jesus came as a ransom for all of us. He paid the price to set all of us free from sin and death and Satan. None of us are a ransom for anyone else. So in that sense, we can't imitate him. That The price has been paid once and for all. There is no debt outstanding. For those of you who are following Jesus, you've been redeemed by him. He's bought you out of that slavery. For those of you who are not yet following Jesus, he's paid the bill. All you have to do is accept that into your life and say, yes, I'm going to let you pay for my sins instead of choosing to pay for them on my own. I'm going to accept the fact that you've paid this debt that I can't pay. That simple. You make that decision in your heart this morning and you're set free. But for us, in terms of what this looks like for service and sacrificial living, none of us, again, are going to be a ransom because there's no need for a ransom anymore. Jesus paid for the sins of every man and woman who has ever lived and who will ever live. Paul, I think it's in Philippians 2 and in 1 Timothy 4, two different times he says he compares himself to a drink offering. He says, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. And that's a great picture for us to grab onto what this life of service, sacrificial love looks like. It looks like you've got a cup of water and you're dumping it out. That's what it looks like. That's what Jesus is talking about here, completely emptying himself on behalf of others. Read Philippians 2, 4 through 11. You can get a fuller picture of that. We're not going to look at that this morning, but you can jot that down and read it this week and meditate on that. That's, again, this picture. Paul says, have this same attitude that Jesus has. And then he, then he describes Jesus emptying himself, pouring himself out, and then God filling him back up and raising him up. So this is what I want us to do. If you're on the wall, look under your chair. There's some note cards, right? Grab one and pass them down. You only need one. Again, I spent a lot of time this week trying to figure out what exactly does it look like to serve, and I honestly couldn't come up with anything because it depends. So this is what I want you to do. 
I want you to write down either two or three, your two or three most prominent roles in your life. So for me, I would write husband, father, pastor. I, I'm other things, but that I'm those three things most of the time. I'd love you to write down at least two. Two or three most prominent roles in your life. And we're going to take about a minute right now. And I'm just going to ask God to speak to all of us and tell us, what does it look like for me to be a servant of all or a slave of all in each of these roles this week? I'm looking for specifics, not some grand, abstract bumper sticker. I want to know, on Tuesday, what does it look like for me, husband of Misty Eldridge, to be, her, to be a servant to her this week? That nitty-gritty. Some of you, you're thinking, I don't hear God. He doesn't speak to me. That's a lie. He does. If you're following Jesus, very clearly the Bible says, he's your shepherd and the sheep know the voice of their shepherd. So I just, if, you, if you don't know what, just write down the first things that come to your mind for each one of those. We're not going to take a long time, but we'll agonize over it. So I'm going to pray, and then y'all just work through those. We'll take about a minute. Lord, you do say very clearly that... Uh, you know your sheep, your sheep know you, and we'll know your voice. And you say in John 15 that this whole thing about serving, it's really about joy is what it comes down to. This is John 15. Let me read this to you. If you obey my commands, you'll remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've said this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other. As I have loved you, greater love has no one than this, and he laid down his life for his friends. You see the connection there between obedience and love and joy. This isn't drudgery. There'll be points where it is difficult. But ultimately, this is what leads us to the fullness of joy. So God, my prayer for each of us now is that you would speak quickly and clearly. What does it look like for us to imitate your son, to be a servant, to be a slave in these prominent roles in our lives? This week. Y'all should write down what you feel like the Lord says. you're not done, that's okay. You can either ignore me or you can do it. Uh, you can go back to it during um, worship.
Y'all want to know mine? You don't care. These were mine. Just to kind of give you a thought for if you're struggling. As a husband, this was this makes me a poor husband the rest of the time. I, I really feel like what the Lord says, just pay attention. A lot of times Misty's talking to me and I'm doing something else. I'm trying to look around her to see the score or whatever. So I felt like plain and simple. To serve her this week, pay attention. Undivided attention when she's talking to me. She's trying to make some big decisions and I just need to focus in on her. As a dad, I felt like the Lord said I need to take, I have an 11-year-old daughter, take her to breakfast. That's it. And as a pastor, we've got, we're setting up in here for one life and we have a kid who's coming in to do that for us and he's trying to work off some hours and I felt like the Lord said I need to help him just for the first week, thankfully for me. So just come in and help him and do that. So those are nothing, that's nothing great about me, but those are the kind of things I'm, I'm hoping you're processing through. Very practically, what does it look like to be a servant and a slave? And it doesn't have to be anything huge and heroic. It's just regular. It's choosing to meet the needs of others and to put someone else their good above you. That's actually the definition of love. It's one of the, one of the values of the kingdom is service. And that's really just a synonym for love. You get that. So I want to encourage y'all this week to press into those things that the Lord said you told you. Be obedient. See what happens. All right. Uh, they came to Jericho. So this crowd comes to Jericho, which is right outside Jerusalem. As Jesus, is, uh, as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, that is the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. The transition from verse 45 to verse 46, theologically, I, I want to hit that for a second, and then we'll, um, we'll close with this story of Bartimaeus. So Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And because of what he's done, we can confidently approach God. We can confidently approach the throne of grace. This is Hebrews 10. It'll be up on the screen starting in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, that's the key phrase, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. So the picture here, if you go back to James and John, and then look at Bartimaeus. There's two different ways that they're approaching God. There's two different ways they're trying to receive what God has for them. James and John are relying on their, um, their history with Jesus. Because they go back with him. Because they're in his inner circle. Well, because of that, Jesus, we want you to give us what we want. Bartimaeus doesn't have any of that. He's blind. And this culture, to be blind, really to have any physical ailment is seen as judgment from God because you're a sinner, especially something significant like blindness. He was a big sinner. 
That's why he says, have mercy on me. Mercy is God withholding punishment or judgment that we rightly deserved. And for Bartimaeus, he's thinking, well, I did something to become blind. And so, God, I'm asking you to be merciful to me. Withhold from me this punishment that I deserve. And verse 45 is what, again, it's the pivot point theologically for both of those. Rather than approaching based on what James and John did, based on their history with God, or for me, I mentioned last week, I approach based on my track record. The fact that I don't, I'm a pretty good guy. I don't mess up huge very often. And so in my arrogance, I can think, Jesus, because I'm such a good guy, because my record is, is pretty spotless, especially compared to other people, well, give me what I want. Be great. Give me something. Answer my prayers. It's not grace. I'm asking him to, because I deserve it. Again, it's arrogance. I forget that my righteousness is filthy rags. Other people approach him based on their own uh, piety based on how much they pray or they fast or how much they serve. God, because of all these things I've done, give me what I need. And some of you, that's, that's the kick for you. When you need God to act in your life, you wait, set the alarm a few minutes earlier and you read a few more pages every day and you sign up an extra shift in the nursery or maybe you fast a little longer and it's, it's all to say, see God, look how much I want this or look how spiritual I am now come through for me. Give me what I need. All of that is works-based approach to God. It's not what Hebrews says. By his blood, this way has been opened. Because of the ransom that he paid for us, we've all been set free from slavery. We're now sons and daughters of God. And we approach him as a child approaches a father. Because of what Jesus has done for us, I can ask freely and confidently. I don't have to prove. I don't have to earn. I don't have to convince or cajole. None of that. I can just ask, trusting that he desires to give me good gifts. And if he doesn't give me what I ask for, I trust him because he's my father and he knows what's best for me anyway. So there's this pivot point between James and John and the way they approach Jesus and Bartimaeus and the way he approaches Jesus. And the the tension for us is this, He shouted and they shushed him. And for each of us, as we approach God, there's going to be that dynamic. It's not that you have to shout. But what God is looking for is conviction from our hearts, this sense of urgency and conviction that God has what we need. In Mark 2, it's the friends that rip open a roof to drop a paralytic in front of Jesus. That's a demonstration that Jesus has what this guy needs. In Mark four, it says, or Mark five, it's this woman who's bleeding, who pushes through a crowd where she's not even supposed to be to grab hold of Jesus's robe. This conviction, Jesus has what I need, and nothing is going to keep me from Him. Again, you don't have to yell, you don't have to shout necessarily. What you need is a conviction that Jesus has the answer that you're looking for. You need to recognize there's going to be some shushing going along. Bartimaeus yells and it says people rebuke him. That's a strong word. For us, it's hardly ever other people. It's almost all right here in our head. That's where all the shushing comes from. Most of it, 90%. What are they going to think? What are they going to think? Whoever they are, they never has a face. But whatever, whoever they are, what are they going to think if I shout? What are they going to think if we tear a hole in the roof? What are they going to think if I have to push through this crowd? And so we pull back. 
We allow our fear of them and what they think to keep us from pushing through with this conviction that Jesus has what we need. So most of us stay blind. And we don't have to. He's standing right there. But most of us, we miss when Jesus walks by because we're afraid of them and what they think. Interesting to me, Jesus says, what do you want? The guy's blind. What do you think he wants? He wants to see. But there's something about asking. Tom Painter, the pastor at Riverstone, one of his little slogans, general prayers get general answers, specific prayers get specific answers. He want, what do you want, Bartimaeus? He already knows, and sometimes that's a cop-out for us. Well, God already knows what I need, so why do I need to ask him? Because he wants you to ask him. Be specific. What do you want from him? What he wants from you, that's what we just talked about, this whole idea of serving, giving your life away. Now the question is, well, what do you want from him? If you're on the side of the road, if you were to walk by today, what's the deep need in your heart? What's the thing that you would want? And honestly, what are the shh? Be quiet. Don't do that. Don't ask. What keeps you from asking him? I want to close with this. The first Sunday of every month, we kind of do this birthday deal. So if your birthday's in June, in a second, I'm going to ask you to stand up, if you want, and tell us, what do you want for your birthday? Psalm 37.4 says, if we, de- we delight ourselves in the Lord, he'll give us the desires of our heart. And so we just ask you, and it's got to be 10 seconds or less. We want you to pray, or we want you to say, this is what I want for my birthday. And we'll just pray that God would give you that. We've heard some great testimonies already from people in May and June who've had their birthday gifts given to them already. That's the only thing that I ask is when God gives you what you want, that you let me know. So it just it's encouraging for us as a group to know that. You don't have to share if the thing that you want is, uh, for whatever reason, you just don't feel comfortable sharing it, then don't. I don't want any of you to feel manipulated, but I would like you to stand up, and we'll still pray that God, God will, will give you what the desires of your heart are. So again, there's this tension between saying what you want and kind of the shushing of the crowd and what are they going to think. And I, I want to encourage y'all without manipulating you to share. So, and then we'll do something for the whole congregation. So are there any June birthdays? Any other June birthdays? Does anybody want to share what they want for their birthday? Perfect. So let's do this. If you're near them, just put a hand on them. If you're not near them, pray from where you're sitting.